So we are in Ezekiel, and last week we got into chapter 36. I think we went all the way to 36.15, and one of the things that God does in this passage that we just finished is he treats the earth and the land as an active participant in things. The idea, of course, is that the earth is feminine to God's masculine. And so when God speaks, the earth executes. There's a phrase that goes clear back to the Exodus where the spies go up into the land and they come back and they bring a bad report and they say that this is a land that devours its inhabitants. And the same thing gets said here And the idea is that once the people become corrupt, the land itself starts to fight with them. That would have been the case with the Canaanites, because remember, when Israel goes into the land, their instructions are, wipe them all out. Don't leave anybody there. And... Of course, one of the things that gets Israel in trouble is they, A, don't wipe them all out, and then B, they start to adopt Canaanite beliefs and practices. So God gets so upset with them that he tells them to destroy everybody, and they see the land as being a land that devours its inhabitants. I'm suggesting that the Canaanites are what we're talking about the first time, And then as Israel goes down into corruption, the land again turns and vomits them out and devours its own inhabitants. So God talks to the land here and says, at some point that's going to be reversed and you will no longer have people on you that will cause you to do that. The comment was that when... Adam and Eve ate of the wrong tree. They got kicked out of the garden, and one of the things that was cursed was the ground. Adam and Eve were not cursed in Genesis 3. The ground was cursed, and the snake was cursed. Adam and Eve, then, as they go out and start having a family, discover that the ground fights them as opposed to producing for them. And in fact, there's rabbinic belief, Noah means rest. And the belief is the reason Noah means rest is because Noah invented the plow, which enabled them to till the ground and get some rest. They didn't have to constantly work because the plow was able to break up the ground and it was able to be sown and it would produce enough that they had leisure. That's a rabbinic idea that is not in Scripture anywhere. But anyway, the point of what we were going through last week is God is apologizing to the land for the people who were on it. So what we're going to get tonight is a second iteration of the New Covenant. Back in Ezekiel 11, we had the first iteration of the New Covenant. There's nothing new about the New Covenant 
the new covenant goes clear back to Deuteronomy, and the terms of the new covenant are stated differently by different prophets, but it all amounts to the same thing. When Moses talks about the new covenant, he talks about circumcision of the heart. When Ezekiel talks about it, he talks about removing your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. When Jeremiah talks about it, he talks about writing the Torah on your heart. So the new covenant in all three cases is the same concept, just different wording. So let's get started and we'll talk about it as we get there. We're in Ezekiel 36, 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. By the way, this metaphor of a woman in her menstrual impurity, the problem with blood is it's a marker of mortality. There are a number of markers of mortality in the Torah. So man, when he has a futile emission of semen, is also unclean. Shorter period of time, but the same rules apply. So all of these are markers of mortality, which we picked up when we ate of the wrong fruit. So that's what's being said here. So 18 again. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they had come. The concept here, obviously, is not that Hebrews in exile are bad-mouthing God. That's not what's being said there. I mean, they may be doing that too, but that's not what the scripture says. What the scripture says is, these people worship Jehovah, and they got cast out of their land, and you remember at the Exodus, starting with the golden calf, what did God say about the Israelites when they were doing the golden calf? He said, Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you. And what Moses says is, uh, bad idea, God, because if you do that, the nations will say that you weren't able to keep your promises. That's the word that we'll get around. So God then relented of the destruction he was going to do, and he, he does that a couple of times during the Exodus. But the idea here is God is jealous for his name, but God has a problem. Because on the one hand, his people are acting in a way that's causing the land to vomit them out. But when they are vomited out and they are now among the nations, the nations say, oh, what was with this God that he couldn't keep his own people in the land? So that's what's going on here. On the one hand, your behavior is so bad that you can't stay there because that will profane my name. 
because the people will look at you in the land and say, oh, I guess their God must approve of all this stuff. So if I throw you out of the land, then what they're going to say is, well, this God must not be very powerful because he couldn't keep his people in line and in the land. And it's a logical bind. It's not an ability bind. One of the things that happens with smart alecks, especially smart aleck Calvinists, is can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? It's dumb. It's simply a trick of language. And it's the same thing here with this. It's not a reflection on God's ability. It's a trick of human language that it seems like a bind. The point is he is concerned about his name. So what he's going to do is he is going to bring them back, not for their sake, but for his own sake. So we're all the way down to verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Notice that they're the cause of the problem, and they are going to be the material by which that problem is solved. They're not going to solve the problem. So they're not the instrument by which God solves the problem, because they're not going to solve the problem. God's going to solve the problem. But they are the material he's going to use in solving that problem. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. All right, that's the new covenant. It's stated in different metaphors by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Moses. So the metaphor changes depending on who's saying it, but the concept is the same. Now, one of the things that I've said, and I will say it for the people out there that may listen to this on the internet and haven't heard it, you all remember that at Sinai, what was intended to happen there was the consummation of a marriage, the marriage being between God and Israel. What happens in a marriage consummation, of course, is that the husband takes information and puts it into the wife with the intention of bringing forth new life. As I've said many times, the actual seed that a man ejects is like a thumb drive. The seed itself is not what's important, it's the information on it. So the wife then takes that information and brings forth new life. So what God was intending to do was write his Torah, which is information, on the heart of his bride. If you read Exodus 20, it becomes obvious that the bride said, stop, if you do this anymore, I'll die. And that happens between the second and the third commandments. So the idea there is 
God tried to consummate the marriage, the bride would not. So tablets of stone then became a metaphor for hearts of stone. The Torah was never intended to be written on tablets of stone. That only became the plan when the bride would not let it be written on her heart. And so the deal is you will schlep these rocks around until the new covenant kicks in to remind you that you have hearts of stone. And Yeshua calls it a hard heart. There's various terms for it, but the idea is you would not accept the word of God written on your heart like it was designed to be and like it was intended to be. So what the metaphor here is goes back to Sinai where Ezekiel says or God says through Ezekiel what I will do now is I will take that heart of stone out of you and I will give you a heart of flesh that will accept my word written directly on it as I have always wanted it to be. Now, give you something rabbinic here at the same time. Timing of this is not clear. Just like the timing of the new covenant is not clear. Because this is the new covenant. It may be a new Jerusalem kind of thing, or it may be a millennial reign kind of thing. And quite frankly, I don't know. I think Tom is of the opinion that it's a millennial reign thing. I sort of lean toward New Jerusalem, but neither one of us is going to be consulted, so it'll be whatever God decides it will be. The rabbis say about this, and of course the rabbis study this text just like we do because it's part of the Tanakh, and what the rabbis say is in the new heaven and the new earth, free will will cease to exist. And the reason for that is free will will have served its purpose. And the purpose of free will is to allow this world that we are in right now to sort people into sheep and goats. As we go through this world, some of us will sort ourselves into sheep and into the kingdom of God. Some of us will sort ourselves into goats and refuse the kingdom of God. That's the purpose of free will, according to the rabbis. Once that sorting has taken place and is complete and we're in the new heaven and the new earth, then that really has no more purpose. And if you look at what's being said here, I will write my law on your heart, which is to say my Torah will be inside of you. Violating my Torah will not occur to you because it's written where it's supposed to be written and you no longer have a rebellious spirit. Quite frankly, I think there's a lot of merit to that idea. You know murder could exist, but it isn't something that you would ever contemplate doing. And the same with the other sins in the Torah. While we're here, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So this consummation that didn't happen at Sinai will happen. And so the marriage, if you will, is complete and consummated, and they are his people, and he is their God. 29. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Notice the disgrace of famine among the nations. 
well, if this is your God, how come you guys are having a famine? You know, you're worshiping your God and you got a famine. There must be something about your God that just isn't up to snuff. 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. The idea here, obviously, is when everything is set up the way God wants it to be set up, we will feel ashamed of all of the stuff that we did that caused all of this to happen. Because all of this is caused by people. None of this is caused by God. So God is simply reacting, if you will, to people's lousy behavior. So verse 33, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Now, stop there for a minute. This goes back to our little riff we started at the beginning about the fact that the land is an active participant. But the thing that I don't understand here, and maybe I do understand it, but the thing that should cause you to pause is the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified. Fortification is a military thing. So it is, in fact, not the case that there is peace on earth because fortified cities are still necessary, which would lend credence to Tom's perspective that this is a millennial reign thing as opposed to a New Jerusalem thing. The idea of fortified cities there is, oh, wait a minute, if everything is perfect and Israel's in its land and everything is going the way it's supposed to go, why do we need fortified cities? And I think the answer must be because they still needed. 36. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Now, I think pretty much everybody knows this, but the land was in fact desolate before 1948. And you can see on a satellite image where the Jewish areas are versus where the Palestinian areas are. And the Palestinian areas are brown and the Jewish areas are all lush and green. You can see it on a satellite map. So the idea that the land is happy to have its people back is visible today. So verse 37, thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So now we're down to chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, 
can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So obviously, this is the whole house of Israel, and I suspect that this is Israel before the separation. In other words, in fact, let's go to Jeremiah 31 to make the point. Down to verse 31, which is the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Look at what's just happened here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You have Israel and Judah, separate. Then you come down to verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So the idea there is Israel and Judah have come together. And they are now just Israel. The same thing is going to happen in Ezekiel with the two sticks. So one of the things about the new covenant that is consistent is that it is with everybody. Ephraim, Judah, all of the tribes. And the reason I say that is because back here in Ezekiel, he's talking about Israel. And at least at this point in context, it isn't clear whether he's talking about the entire nation or the house of Israel. And so I want to come back and show you that in Jeremiah, it is clear that what he's talking about is reunited Israel, not just the exiles from Babylon returning. So anyway, the idea is this is the house of Israel, and what is going to happen is they're, of course, going to be raised. Down to verse 7 now. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. What we have at this point is corpses, fresh corpses as opposed to dried out ones, but we still have corpses. And by the way, what we're going to see here is this mirrors the creation in Genesis 2, where God brings the earth and molds people out of the earth and then breathes into it and we have life. That's the same thing that's going to happen here, except instead of using raw dirt like he does in Genesis 2, he is using the remnants, if you will, of the house of Israel. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Now the breath there, the word under there is ruach, 
And you all remember in Genesis 2, there are three words for breath. You have ruach, nephesh, and neshama. And they're used slightly differently in Genesis 2, but they're all variations on breath or wind. Here it's just ruach. And by the way, for those of you who remember the block diagram of a human that I used during the SAR, the three breaths from Genesis 2, the neshama was what Christians would call the spirit, the part of you that connects to God. The nephesh is what Christians would call the soul, mind, will, and emotions. It's also a word for breath. The ruach is the part of you that animates the flesh. In other words, that's the actual air that you're taking in and out that enables you to burn food and do all sorts of stuff. So the ruach in Genesis 2 is the thing that gets the meat warm as opposed to the thing that connects it to God as opposed to the thing that is mind, will, and emotions inside. So what we have here again is ruach, and if we look at that from the perspective of Genesis 2, what we're talking about here is simple animation. So verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army is my translation. Multitude is the Tanakh, just a large number of people. It is not necessarily a military thing. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord God. My very favorite rabbinic things about resurrection, and this would lend credence to it. You remember the generation that fell in the wilderness, the ones that balked when it came time to go into the land, and God says, all right, you're all going to die here in the wilderness, and your children are going to go into the land. There's a rabbinic thing that says at this resurrection, those bones will come up and they will enter the land and Moses will lead them. Because remember, Moses is also buried in the wilderness. He didn't go into the land either. I've always thought that was just absolutely charming. Verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, And I will join it with a stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, 
Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, and on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. This, of course, explicitly talks about the reuniting of Israel and Judah. It's also in the Jeremiah passage, but you sort of got to pay attention, otherwise you'll miss it. But it's the same concept. And remember, Ezekiel does a lot of symbolic stuff, you know, he lays on one side and bakes his bread and, you know, all that kind of thing and tunnels through a wall. This is the same kind of a thing where he gets these two sticks and he writes Ephraim and Judah and then binds them together. And the idea is they're going to ask him what this means. And remember that the people who are in exile to whom he is prophesying are all Judah. Israel has been gone for almost 130 years. They're gone. And so this idea that they're all going to come back, God hasn't lost track of any of them, is what this is intended to show these exiles. And it's a thing of hope. There are sort of two strains of Messianic Judaism, and again, most of you know this. There's one house and two house. One house congregations are typically founded and run by ethnic Jews, Two-house congregations are typically founded and run by people who don't know their ethnic Jews, like me and Ray. Where we are is the two sticks. The fact that you have Gentiles coming to Torah, evidencing all of this interest and love for Israel, is to us a manifestation that this two-stick thing is starting to happen. There's a process of exile. The process is, and I will get the reference for you, that God covers the nation's eyes and ears, which is prophets and seers. So their prophets will no longer be able to get messages from God, and their seers, their wise men, will no longer give good counsel. And then he will close the book. And the book will be, if you give it to someone who can read, he will say this book is closed. If you give it to one who cannot read, he will simply say, I cannot read it. But the point is the word of God will be taken away as part of that process of exile. It's a three-step process. Prophets go, seers or wise men go, and then the book becomes closed. And at that point, the nation is ready to go into exile. So it's Isaiah 29. At the end of that chapter that process is reversed. So at the beginning of the chapter, it describes this process of exile. At the end of that chapter, it describes the reversing of that process. And I have often hoped 
and believed, both of those things, I don't know, that this messianic movement that has gone on since 1948 is a reopening of the book. We're now reading the book the way it was intended to be read as opposed to encrusted with 2,000 years of random Christianity. Now, again, don't get me wrong, I, I am a Christian, I am a believer in Yeshua, but a lot of the stuff that's been added on is very much like the rabbinic oral law. In other words, the Catholics have got just as much oral law as the Jews do. They've been at it a long time. Here, we are a two-house congregation, and it's my hope that you have us out there that grew up Gentiles, didn't know who we were, are all of a sudden waking up and seeing the book the way it was intended to be seen. Now, a one-house congregation are Jews that have come out of rabbinic Judaism and are ethnic Jews and say, you're welcome to join us, but you're not us, you're not Israel. We are definitely a two-house congregation because it is my hope and my belief that Ephraim out in the world is waking up. One-house congregations believe that Ephraim is out there. They don't see it the way we do. They think Judah is the older brother. We're the ones that have hung around for all of these thousands of years. We are the ones that have endured the pogroms. We are the ones that have kept the name of God. So Ephraim, you're welcome back, but understand we're the older brother. And that would be a one-house perspective, if you will. And not unreasonably, quite frankly. That attitude is not unreasonable. I just, I just don't see it that way. But I'm certainly not grumpy with somebody who sees it the other way. So 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. I believe that's David. Red-headed David, raised from the dead, and once again a king. And if it is in fact David, that lends credence to the idea of fortified cities. Because what was David? He was a warrior. Remember, he didn't get to make the temple. He had to go to his son Solomon because God says, you're a man of war, and I don't want that for my temple. Your son will build it. David got all the stuff together, and he stacked it all, but it was Solomon that got to build it. So the idea that David is going to be the king indicates to me that perhaps a warrior is going to be needed. Or it may just be God likes David. That may not be the case at all. 25. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where their fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with him. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That sounds like New Jerusalem stuff. Remember when the city comes down out of the overhead, and the deal is the dwelling place of God is now with men. Again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about any of this, because I don't know. 
Verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. It's Revelation 21 stuff. And you remember, in Revelation 21, you have the new heaven and the new earth. The new Jerusalem comes down, and the nations are around the new Jerusalem. You're going to have people who are not Israel who are going to make it past the lake of fire. They're going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. In the Baptist sense, they're going to be saved. But they're not going to be Israel. Israel is going to be in the new Jerusalem. The way I, of course, describe it is it's analogous to the camp in the wilderness where you've got the tabernacle in the middle. Then you've got the Levites who camp around the tabernacle and guard it and keep it and serve it. And then you have the rest of the tribes in a ring outside of the Levites. So if you pop that up, what was the Levites in the camp in the wilderness becomes Israel in the new heaven and the new earth. And what was the tribes who were not Levi become the nations. Don't know if that's what's going to happen, but that's what the book seems to indicate. 